This is Cabernet and True Crime, the place where good wine and true crime come together. And yeah, there's no music this time. I just don't like the way it sounds anymore, so we're skipping the music. This is going to be not a weird one, but also just, um, we're here and we're doing it, right? (laughs) We're skipping the music because I'm hoping it's, uh, let, let me rewind a little bit, first of all. It's finals week for grad school, and uh, it's uh, it's been a it's been a time. So um, we're really we're really testing ourselves. We're really really reeling it in and pulling it together, and we're doing our best, right? Okay. So step one out of the way. It's finals week. I've also been sick this whole week, so we're just gonna we're cruising right in. We're doing it. So it's episode sixty-two. Isn't that kind of crazy? we're here and we did it episode 62 i think every time it's like like a birthday for me every time that number goes up you're like yes like you you did it you made it one more loop through it (laughs) okay sorry i took a break just to come back and like make that weird noise for you guys so that's a thing I'm in my office with the door shut, and it almost feels kind of like the podcast closet just a little bit. I don't think the acoustics are as good. Hopefully, and I say this every week, I know, I'm trying to figure this out. It'll, it's not like a matter of figuring it out. It's just like I put it out of my brain until literally it's time to sit down and record, and I'm like, shoot, I didn't, I didn't do that yet. Um, and one of these times, I'll be proactive enough to do it, but it's fine. Um, and like I said, I'm sick. Uh, the murder mystery party went super well, if you cared, um, or even remember that I talked about that. It was a great time, uh, but the stress of, like, planning everything and cleaning, and now it's finals week, and I'm sick, and it's, like, I have the immune system of Bubble Boy. Like, I mean, my body is always ready to be sick. If you, like, look at me, I'm gonna get sick. (laughs) Before you even say, like, Jana, you gotta take your vitamin. Yeah, I know. I do. I take a lot of vitamins, and it doesn't, um, it doesn't do anything for me, so I'm getting over being sick. I've just been forcing myself, like, through life this week, and that's really all you can do, is just force yourself through it. Um, I told Chris, my husband, uh, that I just, I'm just deciding I'm just gonna gaslight myself into, like, believing, like, I'm healthy, and I feel great, and I'm not tired, and I feel awesome. So anytime I ever say, like, oh, I'm tired, Chris just says, gaslight, <laughs> light that gas, so... I'm gaslighting myself into just, um, doing it. Uh, I do have to take a final after this, so that's fun and exciting. Isn't that good? We love it. Uh, yeah, so the Murder Mystery Party, um, I highly recommend. I bought it off Etsy. It's a, this is not sponsored. I'm just saying that if you, it is the spooky season, and if you want to do a Murder Mystery Party, or even not one for the spooky season, they've got a bunch of different options. It was a lot of fun. Um, everybody got into it, and we just had a great time and drank a lot of wine and watched a bunch of movies and it was a really good time. So I, I 10 out of 10 recommend murder mystery parties with all your girlfriends and then have them stay the night. I had a good time. Uh, so the case that we're going to talk about today, I can't even begin to tell you how I stumbled upon this one. <laughs> like fully and honestly, I somehow was just researching this. I don't even know how I got there. It probably has something to do with like the day quill or the NyQuil, or the overlap between the two, and that sweet time of day when you're switching between one and the other, uh, <laughs> the guards are switching duties of being sick, um, couldn't tell you when, when it happened, but it did, at some point, I was researching this case. 
Um, and I know it might be, like, a little bit different than our normal, like, crime content, but it still is fascinating. And it is crime-adjacent and kind of an offshoot. So, uh, but today we are going to be talking about Lila Gladys Young and the ideal maternity home. And I'm going to, I'm going to try to, con- like, convey this story to you in the best possible way that isn't, like, super confusing. But I do go on a lot of, uh, rabbit holes, so you're just going to have to bear with me on that one. Truthfully, for this story, the best place to start is in the beginning. Lila Gladys Coolin was born in Fox Point, Nova Scotia on October 23rd, 1899. Uh, Fox Point is in Canada, if you didn't know that, right by Halifax. And that's all kind of, it's like right across the bay from Maine, jutted out into the North Atlantic Ocean. So it's not like north-north, like when you think of like Canada, but like still in Canada, but kind of in line with Maine. So like uh like if america had bangs it's in the bangs of america that i hope that visual makes any type of sense to you uh (laughs) lila was one of 10 children and from what i can tell she was number six out of 10 her parents salem and elizabeth were devout seventh day adventists i think i feel like i said that wrong but i don't think i did um i don't know all that much about that religion but practice what you want to as long as you're not hurting anybody you know i really it doesn't really matter to me what religion they were it does kind of tie into the story is the only reason why i bring it up um live your best life but don't stop uh, anybody else from doing it too it's kind of how i feel about all that so seventh day adventists or sdas as i'm gonna call them from now on is a denomination of the protestant christian denomination and they observe Saturday as the Sabbath. The religion strongly believes in the second coming of Jesus Christ. Just a little, just a little how you do about their religion. Um, in my brief research, though, I did discover something that I didn't know that is completely off topic, but I figured I'd share it with you so you can know it too. So SDAs are kosher and vegetarian, typically. Did you know that SDA, like the SDAC, adding church onto that acronym now, had a lot to do with influencing our morning breakfast as well as like non-meat food alternatives because I certainly didn't. John Harvey Kellogg, yes, that Kellogg, ran Battle Creek Sanitarium in Battle Creek, Michigan. So in 1876, Dr. John Kellogg became a medical superintendent um, for that facility and his brother, W.K. Kellogg, was the bookkeeper. And the Battle Creek Sanitarium was a world-renowned health resort, and that was started in 1866. So sanitarium sounds kind of like a spooky word, but it's really just like a, like a premier wellness destination is what they kind of marketed it as. Um, and it was really just for people to take a little break from life when they needed to, which, I mean, I could spend a little bit of time in a sanitarium if you wanted to ship me off there right now. It would be fine. Uh... So, Battle Creek Sanitarium was founded on principles of the SDAC when, in 1866, Ellen G. White presented the idea to create the health institution based on the newly developed health philosophy of the SDAC, and her husband was a leader of the church, so it happened. A few super notable people who have stayed at that sanitarium were Thomas Edison, Amelia Earhart, Henry Ford, and James Cash Penny, who you probably know as J.C. Penny from the J.C. Penny stores. Anywho, Dr. Kellogg started the meat alternative movement by creating Protoast while working there, which was later sold to the Battle Creek Food Company, and people could order it by mail, but the food is mostly manufactured for those staying at the sanitarium. The Kellogg brothers invented cornflakes while at the sanitarium by putting stale wheat berry between rollers and baking it. 
The sanitarium guests absolutely loved it, and so the brothers um, also invented bran flakes and Rice Krispies. And now you know where this all leads to because they're um, super household names at this point. I mean, who hasn't heard of, like, Rice Krispies? Uh, so it's just funny because it's all Kellogg. And it's funny, too, because there are two other sanitariums in Australia and New Zealand, um, the Sanitarium Health and Wellbeing Company, that are also owned by the SDAC, and they manufacture other cereal brands like So Good, Up and Goat, and Wheat Bix. So that's interesting that, like, it all kind of came, and it all kind of ties into the story, maybe a, little, a smidge, but it is just interesting that I, I didn't know that. Um, so I know that didn't have anything to do with anything, but I thought it was fun. Um, and Dr. Kellogg wasn't a devout member of the SDAC. Um, he disfellowshipped from them in 1907, but remained part of the Battle Creek Sanatorium. Uh, he said that he and his employees didn't belong to any church and were independent, um, yet still operated on the SDAC beliefs. And that seemed good enough because Dr. Kellogg ran the facility until 1943 when he died at the age of 91. Um, while researching this, though, Battle Creek Sanatorium and John Kellogg could be a whole podcast on their own. They're not true crime necessarily, but dang, uh, John Harvey Kellogg had some interesting and highly questionable beliefs on eugenics and race betterment, and the Battle Creek Sanatorium, well, was kind of like a shit show. And in 1929, after the Wall Street crash, no one with any money really went to that sanitarium anymore, but it didn't close down. Um, in case you're just curious as to where the story ends, for whatever reason, uh, after World War II started, the U.S. Army bought it and turned it into a hospital. So, and it's no longer part of the SDAC. Sorry for that weird sidebar, but I, I thought it was interesting. And sometimes you gotta do them, you know? It's been a minute since we've actually gone down a rabbit hole like that. So, bada bing, bada boom, there you go. That's, that's the uh, sidebar. Was it really a sidebar, or am I just procrastinating on taking this final? You decide. <laughs> but back to where we were. Oh, Miss uh, Lila Coolin. She's Canadian. Born in 1899. Uh, she has a pretty uneventful childhood, to my knowledge, because there's really nothing about her anywhere. Except for in one article, it mentions that she finished schooling and then taught school in Fox Point. All the things I've read pretty much agree that in her mid-20s, so like 1925 ish she meets a guy named William Peach Young, which that's quite an interesting middle name. Uh, but he was originally from Oregon and moves to Canada, specifically New Brunswick, which is right by Nova Scotia, kind of just north of Maine instead of east of it. So it's the top of the, the top of the forehead of America. Uh, he wanted to be an Adventist medical missionary, but didn't have the ord ordination, yeah, ordination or medical training, um, but he still did it. So fake it till you make it, I guess, right? Which, um... Seeing as he's part of the SDAC is how they met, because Lila's parents were SDAC, and I'm assuming Lila was as well part of that. Um, William and Lila get married, and they move to Chicago. I don't know why they moved to Chicago. Um, Lila has their first child and one of five, from what I've read, and William obtains his licensing as a chiropractor in December of 1927. Lila graduates from the National School of Obstetrics, Obstetrics? Yep, Obstetrics. And midwifery that same year, too, shortly after his graduation, I don't know what the term is, I'm just going to call it graduation, they, uh, in the beginning of 1928, the couple moves back to Chester, Nova Scotia, that's only 20 minutes from where Lila grew up, Fox Point. 
They opened up a sanitarium called the Life and Health Sanitarium in East Chester. Their motto was, where the sick get well. And see, I like how it all comes full circle because they too also open a sanitarium. And we don't really need to talk about everything that happened because they we, we, we all know what a sanitarium is now. Because we already talked about it. So their business started in a four-bedroom cottage with barely enough money to buy cots for their patients to sleep in. Lila was a professional midwife, and because of this, the sanitarium, like, more or less got rebranded to become the ideal maternity home and sanitarium because they were specializing in the delivery of babies and maternity services in general, mostly for unwed mothers. Uh, William becomes a superintendent, and Lila becomes the managing director. And this is just really where our story starts. The young, the youngs were just simply in the right place at the right time. At the time, abortion and birth control were illegal, especially in Canada, which I mean, I don't know why I said it like that. (laughs) They were just, they were illegal. There was no government support for unwed mothers, and most were rejected and disowned by their families and communities. The ideal maternity home offered these women something they desperately needed, discretion. These women could go on vacation, wink, nudge, have the baby, and then return home without said baby, and their reputations would be unscathed. The average age of women who came to the establishment was 17. Now, you might be thinking, what a good deed. They're doing, like, charitable work, helping these moms out so they can, like, keep the reputation. And no, uh, no, they're not. They're not doing anything good, and you're going to see why in a second. Obviously, they wouldn't be on this podcast if they were doing just... This isn't a wholesome podcast. You know, we're not talking about wholesome, good people. We're talking about the shit and the scum of the earth, and, like, this is where this story's going, so sorry to ruin it for you if you're like, oh, this story has... This story does not really have a happy ending for pretty much anybody involved. So, Lila marketed herself as an obstetrician, but she wasn't. She was a midwife, and William wasn't Well, he was a licensed chiropractor, but he wasn't a doctor, and none of the patients needed to know that, but they did, they did say they were doctors on, like, everything they marketed. Married women would come to the facility, um, just because it seemed like a nice place to have a baby, too. Like, if you needed a midwife and you didn't want to go to a hospital, I seemed like this would be, like, a place you could go. So, married women who came to the facility paid about $75 for delivery and then the two weeks of aftercare, right? So, $75 total for two weeks of aftercare and for the delivery. Unwed women who came to the facility to have their baby, like in secret, paid between $100 to $200 in advance for their room and board, delivery, and arrangements of having their babies adopted. Okay. They also had to pay $12 for diapers and supplies, plus an average fee of $300 for care of the babies between delivery and adoption. And if that baby were to pass away for some reason, as babies sometimes do, the mother was responsible for paying $20 for the funeral. And compared to these types of services in today's money, I mean, it's still expensive, but you could figure it out, right? Like, it's a lot of money, but you'd be able to scrounge it all together. Like, that's, it's a very doable, if you were in this predicament, it's a very doable amount of money. You would, if you really needed the service, you would figure it out, right? Um... And for reference, just to, like, paint this picture for you, to put this into perspective, it is the 1930s. Well, like, super late 1920s, but this most of the story takes place in the 1930s. The average salary in the United States right now per week is $957. That's just average. So, I mean, there's obviously people who get paid less, people get paid more. But average for the United States right now, you make $957 per week. During this time frame, in the 1930s, 
the average salary was four to eight dollars per week. Four to eight dollars. That is a yearly salary pre-tax of 208 to 416 dollars. Okay, let's just put that, pop that number in your brain, right? That, that's, a, that's a whole year's salary. To convert for inflation, $100 in the 1930s is about $1,800 today. So obviously this discretion has a very hefty price tag attached to it because they're charging married women who just want to have their baby and take them home $75. That's the price for discretion. Luckily, and I mean I say luckily, but it's not. If you have the money to pay, if you don't have the money to pay for the services, you weren't turned away from the ideal maternity home, who, which I will call IMH at some times. You're welcome to work off your debts by becoming a more or less free employee for the facility. Um, the Youngs didn't employ, at the beginning, any trained nurses. So the young mothers would do laundry, dishes, child minding, and you guessed it, nursing too. It usually took 36-ish months for these women to pay off their debts to um, Lila and William. So 36 months <laughs> of free labor for them. Usually, because the cheaper prices and everything involved, the married woman that came to the sanitarium had a completely different experience than those who came out of necessity. Obviously, they come, they have their baby, they pay their $75, bingo, bango, they leave, life is good, right? Like, they, they don't have any neg ne anything negative to say about it because they did what they came to do, they got treated exactly the way they should have been treated, and then they, then they left, and then that's the end of their story, they have their baby, there you go. Uh... But no, for the other mothers, for the unwed mothers who came with the intent of, I would assume 99% of the time came with the intent of not leaving with that baby, you know, having the baby and it was going to be given to somebody else, a different home. They had a completely different um, experience than everybody else. So elaborate contracts were signed by any of the unwed mothers which gave William the power of attorney and legal authority over the babies and their adoptions. So if the mothers didn't sign the contract within 14 days of the birth, so like if they were, I mean, hesitant on, maybe they didn't, maybe they weren't sure if they wanted to give the baby up. Um, maybe if they weren't, you know, they're trying to figure it out in their heads and for some reason they take more than 14 days to assign this contract. They were charged an additional $30 for the delay. And back to that $20 funeral, that $20 covered a white pine casket, which was actually just a butter box, um, and I think there's a picture of it in my story, or my, not my story, I don't know what my dog is doing, so if you hear him, sorry. $20 for a butter box? He stopped. Okay, sorry. $20 for a butter box that came from a local grocer, and I think there's a picture of it in my story, and it, it like still said butter on the side of it a shroud for the baby, and a $15 contribution to the youngs, which would be present at the funeral. Like, I don't even think they let the mothers be present at the funeral if their baby passed away. So you're giving them good faith that, like, they're going to put this baby in a butter box, give it a shroud, and bury it for $20, which only $5 goes to the actual, I guess, cost of doing it. Um, Lila delivered all the babies herself, and William knelt beside the process in prayer.
And, you know, we talked about some, some finances. We talked about some costs, um, some income that they might be earning on this because they're really not spending a lot of money if you think about it for these prices. And you might be thinking, like, Jana, wow, like that's a lot of money to be gained in such a trying times. And, and yeah, <laughs> yeah, it is. The Youngs must have been rolling in dough, and you're right. They were, because we haven't even scratched the surface of this whole scheme. Because the real money wasn't made through helping the unwed mothers, no. The real money came from selling babies. When I said that the Youngs entered a perfect storm, this is what I'm talking about, right? It wasn't necessarily th- that issue. But adoption and regulations on adoption and people trying to adopt, it's hit a weird and obviously you're about to see dangerous crosshair because this I can assure you based off of what I've read that this instant that that we're going to be talking about is not the only time this happened like this had to have happened maybe on a much smaller scale but it, it created this environment that caused the most disgusting things to be happening okay so I guess let's start. (laughs) Adoptive families came from all over eastern Canada and the northeast U.S. desperate to find healthy, white, adoptable infants. And during this time, like I said, the adoption market was super tight, and there's a bunch of different factors that go into this. In the early 1900s, the progressive movement swept through the United States with one critical goal, and that was to improve or end the orphanage system. Because, I mean, we've all seen Little Orphan Annie, and up up until about this time, like, orphanages had, like, a really terrible rap, so they're like, let's just stop doing orphanages, and, like, let's get these babies adopted, <laughs> right? Like, let's, let's really push the adoption thing. Um, President Theodore Roosevelt in 1909 declared that the nuclear family represented the highest and finest product of civilization, and it was the best to serve as a primary caretaker for the abandoned children. Uh... And so, I think it, it was, it was, I'm trying to find the best way to, like, word this. So, I think it was a twofold event, right? So, if you wanted to adopt, I think the U.S. was really hammering down on who they were going to let children go to. And it seems like they were really favoring this nuclear family. So, if you were not a nuclear family, and a lot of the times a Christian nuclear family, fat chance adopting a baby. It wasn't going to happen for you. And then on the other side, um, you have this, we'll we'll get into it, but so you have, you have that aspect of it. You have like the the real push for if you were not a, a straight white family, usually Christian, you weren't going to get a baby. It it just wasn't going to happen for you. It was so hard to adopt a child, right? If, and it, it sucks that, that that's the way it was, but that's just how it was at the time. So you have that aspect of it. And like in this time, there are plenty of children to adopt, but it seemed like families were super scared about, for lack of a better term, the pedigree of the children they were taking in. So we've, like I said, we've got a perfect storm here for the youngs to thrive because unfortunately also at this time, eugenics is super popular in America during the first half of the 20th century. And if you don't know what eugenics is, you can consider it like scientific racism. And it's it's some of the common early 20th century eugenics method uh, involved identifying and classifying individuals and their families, like including the uh, poor, mentally ill, blind, deaf, developmentally disabled, um, a promiscuous woman, the homosexuals, and racial groups as 
degenerate or unfit, and it led to segregation. I mean, it led to World War II. It led to the mass murder and genocide of people because people had this idea in their head that eugenics was such a strong, powerful, at the time, scientific thought. And it's not right, and it's not good, but it is part of the story. So, but in in pre... In the 1930s, really pre-World War II, eugenics gained considerable and very popular support across the United States. Hygiene courses in public schools and eugenics courses in college spread the eugenic-minded values to a lot of young minds, a lot of those people who would be theoretically adopting these children. So if you were, if say if you did fall into that class of um, straight white Christian people, Okay, well then you're going to be going out trying to find a perfect white, theoretically Christian baby. It's it's because of this mindset of eugenics. So, and, and this thought took so much place. I mean, if you look at Germany, but for one example, but it happens all over the world. It's just the Holocaust and the the, the genocide that happened there is such a great um, example of the eugenics being like so prominent in a mindset. But even in America, eugenics was, I mean, look at segregation and racism. Like, that was all part of eugenics, too, maybe on just, like, a lesser scale. But so, even if people didn't necessarily believe in the idea of eugenics itself, it it gained support as a means of reducing costs for institutional care and, like, poor relief. Because people think, like, oh, if if we classify these people as degenerates and, like, lesser people, then we don't have to worry about them if they're poor. Like, they're not, we don't have to worry about those people. So, and like, and if you think about like the, the pushing factor behind that too is it's, it's the 1930s. We just had the stock market crash in 1929. So we're living in the Great Depression. I think people and the government and just everybody in general is trying to rationalize ways to not care about other people. And I don't know if that's like maybe the right mindset. I mean, it isn't the right mindset, but my thinking on that is it's just like, well, scientifically, those, in in my scientific belief, those people are less than me, so I don't care if they're starving to death. You know, I don't know if it was like a mental way of protecting. I'm sure there are just people who are out there who are racist and who just don't care about other people, but I, I think at the same time, too, it, it kind of factors in this mindset of like, I'm protecting myself, and so these people are saying that you're lesser, and I'm just gonna le- I'm just gonna believe them on that, even though it's not the case. It's not true. And I know our story takes place in Canada, but it does because it is the bangs. This section of Canada is the bangs of North America. Like it, it does, it comes into play here because what America was doing, like these people are crossing borders. You know, Americans are crossing borders into Canadian territory to take advantage of the fact that the Canadian rules are different, but. So, like, for example, just to just to really, you know, put the cherry on top of how, like, how serious this this mindset is. In 1931, the Illinois Homeopathic Medicine Association began lobbying for the right to euthanize imbeciles and other defectives. Those are their words, not mine. But in 1938, the Euthanasia Society of America was founded. I mean, this is, like, serious business. You know, if you were just deemed unfit, people wanted you to die, and that's like crazy that's crazy so also during the 1930s the adoption act was very popular i mentioned it a little bit beforehand but over 5000 people or 5000 children i guess were being legally adopted every year by the mid 1930s but these adoptions were not always carried out in a way that was i mean up to snuff 
Adoption societies rarely interviewed prospective adoptive parents or looked into their homes. References were hardly ever checked. Children were shipped off overseas to different states with no tracking and no type of records. There is also nothing in place to regulate cost, and we'll get into that in a minute. So, like, there are absolutely, especially in this case of IMH, there are no checks and balances in place. Babies, nobody's getting interviewed, nobody's being checked into, like, they ask for, a, like, a salary, you know, I mean, the adoption process. They just want to make sure most adoption agencies want to know are you going to a good home? Is this child going to be taken care of? Like, you know, is the house clean? Do you have a good, like, life? Do you have an income? No, not these people. They don't care. As long as you can cut them a check for whatever they're asking for, cool. You can just, you can leave with this baby. I don't, I don't give a shit what happens to it after it leaves here. You give me my money, I give you the baby, and then don't ever call me again. Like, just get out of my face. A lot of the times, uh, couples would come to the IMH in search of babies specifically because they were tired of waiting for the adoptions in their home providence, provinces or states. So from the state side or from different provinces of Canada, they were all following the rules. And so, you know, it takes a long time. Even in today's standards, if you're doing it right and you're doing it the way it's supposed to be done, it takes a really long time to adopt a baby because nowadays, for the most part, people want to look into the home that the baby's going into and all the stuff I mentioned beforehand, they want to make sure this baby's going to be well taken care of and live a happy, healthy life, not just be shipped off somewhere. So the, the process took too long and these people were like, oh, we know this one place, we can just go pay X amount of dollars and get a baby and we can leave literally that day, right? So this is a very specific, a niche aspect of this, but it is their main business. So uh, the Nova Scotia coast draws vacationers from New York and New Jersey because, once again, it's the banks of North America. All those states are kind of up there. Um, and many of those people who visited Nova Scotia apparently were childless Jewish couples frustrated by the long waits for Jewish infant adoptions back home. And I did not know this, but it's very interesting. So the Youngs advertise extensively in American and Canadian newspapers offering lovely babies for adoption, excellent health background, and healthy bodies. So adoption and child welfare laws in most states and provinces in the 1930s and 1940s forbade... Oh, oh he's barking. They forbade adoption placements across religious lines... And as a result, there was a particularly acute shortage of Jewish children available through reputable, reputable child welfare organizations. So if you were Jewish and you wanted to get a baby, um, you had to adopt a Jewish baby uh, because they wouldn't give you a Christian baby. So how do you find a Jewish baby? You know, I mean, so if you're waiting around in the United States or a different province for a Jewish baby, you're going to be waiting for a really long time because apparently at this time, Jewish babies were not being put up for adoption. So if you wanted a baby, how are you going to get a baby, right? So obviously they're going to try something else. And the youngs are living their best lives on this, which is gross. And that's why they're hits while we're talking about them, right? So they, um, the youngs developed a close relationship with those Jewish families and their friends and kind of created a network for adoption. The Adoption law in Nova Scotia did not require children be placed within the same religious group, and the Youngs, had, despite their relationships with the SDAC, consciously rejected the principle of same religion placement. So they they also like yeah we'll see, we'll give you a baby it doesn't matter. Um, when adopting parents were concerned about religious matching, the Youngs would just lie 
Uh, so if a Jewish family came in to say, hi, I would like to adopt a Jewish baby, um, they'd be like, yep, 10 out of 10, this baby is absolutely Jewish, always has been, always will be, here's your Jewish baby. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, there you go. Uh, so it's just, yeah. Um, so the Youngs were uh, in a business because they were willing to disregard the, quote, unbreakable rule of that era that um, American and Canadian adoption agencies believed in, and that was that children must be placed with a family of the same religious background. And, <clears throat> I mean, that's... They were breaking that... that I mean, it's not a rule. I mean, it was a rule in the United States. Um, but, I mean, it was kind of like a moral ground of, like, hey, if these people are asking for a Jewish baby, which, I mean, it's a baby, and, like, I don't think a baby really knows of their own religion, obviously, and I don't think... It's just kind of like an imposed thing. But, so, yeah, I mean, you're really... It was more of, like, an honesty-type thing, and obviously the Youngs are not honest people, so they lied about it. Outside of that reasoning, um, others came because they had been rejected as adoptive parents under the strict guidelines, um, including the religious matching. But, um, so a lot of adoption agencies during this time, especially after 1909, had been employing the new professional standards. So, like, the whole straight, white, Christian thing, um, if you, for whatever reason, didn't fall under that or you wanted to adopt a baby, um, they really didn't ask any questions uh, at IMH, but in Nova Scotia in general, um, they were kind of lax on the rules. So for many Nova Scotians, it seemed unnecessary to spend time and tax dollars to launch invasive studies of adoptive placements and add complications to the simple process of bringing home a child to love, especially if that child might otherwise become a financial burden on the community. So um, in the, the province of Nova Scotia, they were basically just thinking, well, there's somebody here who wants to pay a boatload of money for this child, and if they're willing to pay that much money for this child, then we're not even going to look into it because, obviously, they want this child enough to pay. I mean, <laughs> it's not a million dollars, but in in that time, it basically, like, they're, they're offering you bags of money for this child. They're going to take good care of it because why wouldn't they, right? So they didn't look into the, the whole adoption process. They kind of turned their eyes. So, um... Adoption provided by IMH and a lot of the adoption centers in general were more lax than they are today, but um, a lot of what we see going on is pretty questionable, um, just in general. Uh, like I said before, although adoptive parents approaching um, them for children were required to provide letters of reference and proof of financial standing, um, they weren't checked. Parents chose their new child out of the nursery or, in some cases, selected the child before birth um, after observing expect expectant mothers in the home. And before 1943, the adoptions were processed so quickly, um, sometimes within less than 24 hours, you could walk out with that baby. Um, the local county court where the children were as young as two to three days two to three days old. So you could literally show up, the mom could pop out a baby, and you could take that baby away with you within 24 hours. It just, that's bananas, right? Um, if the family was returning back to the United States, um, sometimes obtaining a Canadian passport and the American entry visa took a couple weeks, maybe two weeks longer than that. But oftentimes, parents were to IMH, got their baby, and back home within three weeks' time. It was like the longest it would take you to get a baby. Um, there was no 
a follow-up investigation. There was no check-ins. There was no, like I said before, it was literally come get your baby and then leave. And I'm never going to talk to you again. You got your baby. I got my money and the deal has been done. We don't need to talk anymore. Uh, so very much like a black market baby operation is kind of what it seems like. Um, and you'd think, and I think though, on some level, right, it's good. It's good to some extent that these babies, these babies found good homes, you would assume, right? But if we're going to go back to like, these people paid a boatload of money for these, these babies, these people paid a boatload of money for the babies and they got, you know, they're getting what they want. You're assuming that these babies are going to go to good homes and it's just, it's a, it's a thing, right? And you know, like, the legality of it all is in question, but you're, like, if you're looking at this face value, you're, like, yeah, it's cool. These babies are going to a loving home. Um, yeah, but not, not always, uh, because this, there's, we're getting into the problematic bits of this, right? Because on the surface, it looks fine, and it looks like it's okay, but once you take the tiniest, take your pinky toenail and scratch at it, and there's yuck underneath it, right? So, in some situations, um, these new parents were not aware that siblings or twins may have been separated to give them their chosen child, or that uh, in some cases the child may have been secretly taken away from its mother. Uh, so some married women who stayed at the IMH to give birth, uh, they were told their babies died when actually the child was sold off to an American couple. Because I don't think they segregated, like, if, so once the mother's recovering, I think all the babies were just kind of in the same place until it was time for the married mom to go home. And if somebody came in and said, I want that baby, um, they would just sell it to that person and then they'd just tell the mom that their baby passed away. Like, I don't think there was any checks or balances in there to say, like, nope, this baby has a mom. It just, they were all in one place and they said the baby died, which is really fucked up. Um... Yeah, so the the real parents went home empty-handed and broken-hearted, and the youngs had money in their pockets. So that's not good. Um, but now down to the price tag of these babies. Um, the babies were sold between $1,000 and $10,000 each. So when I say bags of money, I literally mean bags of money. And on top of that, donations were demanded and expected. So if you're coming in to buy this baby, you better bribe the hell. Like, on top of whatever money you're going to pay, you're bribing the hell out of the young family, too, to get your baby. Um, and by 1933, the Youngs had plans to expand the home. IMH was growing in reputation, and with, um, and, like, the, the number of births and adoptions is growing as well. Like, they're, they're really running a whole thing here, right? Around this time, though, um, the Youngs' lucrative business and their alarming reported reported mortality rate had attracted the attention of the Nova Scotia Child Welfare Director and Health Minister, who at this point forced them to hire a registered nurse, um, and this is the first time they have one. But between 1928 and 1938, sorry, 35, Lila reported that there had been 148 births and 12 infant deaths, meaning that had a mortality rate of 8.1%, which is nearly triple Nova Scotia's average of 3.1. And as a reminder, and maybe a hint, that's just the deaths reported. Okay, this is the, the amount of deaths that Lila's telling them about. 
Uh, starting in 1934, the Nova Scotia Department of Public Welfare starts gathering evidence against the Youngs, um, which is kind of a difficult thing because the Youngs know a lot of people, and they have lined a lot of people's pockets, um, like local businessmen, Nova Scotia families, and politicians. Um, yeah, <laughs> they're lining pockets, and they are they know people's secrets, right? They have to. If they're working with the affluent families of Nova Scotia, and they provide secret baby births, you would assume that these people, Lila and William, know some secrets about some people who uh, they don't want other people to know about. So I'm just saying. Uh, so they weren't very helpful in any of this evidence gathering. Um, but the Nova Scotia Department of Public Welfare definitely knows that something is amiss. Um, also, like, no matter how much evidence they're kind of gathering, the province's child welfare system doesn't really have the mechanisms in place to shut down this facility either. So they could really get a lot of evidence, but they can't do anything about anything because there's no real rules against what anybody's doing here, right? Like, so right now, there's no rules against this. Like, Lila and William are just doing what they're doing, but there's no there's no real reason to tell them to stop because you can't say, well, this rule book, item number 27, tells you you can't... No, there's nothing. There's nothing in there to tell them to stop. Especially because, and I think I mentioned it in my script a little bit later, but they are their own... Um, because they are a sanatorium... Yeah, because they're a sanatorium and, like, a, a home... Uh, there's certain rules that they are kind of their own entity and like they're not protected in the same way that a hospital is so they don't have to follow the same type of rules. In 1935 the Youngs were convicted of fraud for charging child care expenses for a deceased child meaning that somebody found out that their child had actually passed away but they were still paying the 300 plus dollars for the care of it. How that mother found out her child had passed away I do not know but that is an entirely just awful situation. On March 4th, 1936, Lila and William are charged with two counts of manslaughter in the January deaths of Eva Nyforth and her newborn child, um, which was allegedly caused by negligence and unsanitary conditions at the home. Um, William and Lila were both acquitted at their three-day trial in May of 1936. Like I said before, um, most Nova Scotians, the high-ranking ones, supported the maternity home for hmm, whatever reason they supported it. Uh, and I just think it all that it's hinted at in several articles that that's likely what led to the jury's decision to quit because they needed the maternity home to do what it was doing. And it was such a lucrative business that like they, they really needed it to continue to prosper. So they were acquitted. Uh, this does, though, like, officially, officially put IMH on the radar for other suspicious activities as well as welfare checks, and the court also investigated all of the reported deaths at the home, um, once again, reported. Um, so from at least then, uh, when they were unsuccessfully prosecuted for manslaughter, uh, like I said, they're aware of the home's problems and shortcomings. So because... Of the rules in place right now, right? Like, so they know this is happening. Like I said, there's no, there's nothing out there that they can slap anybody with a book because there isn't a book. There's no book to be slapped with. So the first answer is that in the 1930s and well into the 1940s, so this is going to go on for a really long time and you're going to get really mad about it. 
the government has no authority to inspect or regulate um, the IMH or anything like that. There's no mechanism for inspection for maternity homes or private hospitals. The adoption law, I mean, is just like in good faith. It's all in good faith. So it's a super deficient because you're hoping that these people will treat babies with some type of respect and like treat them well, but that you're it's all in good faith. You don't have anything to check up on them. Uh, and there's also no way for like Nova Scotia to like tell people who they cannot or can give a baby to. So you can't say, oh, nope, you can't give this baby to those people. There's, there's nothing there to say that. And there's also no thing in place to, um, to like say, oh, you have to wait a week before you can take this baby home. Hang on. I'm glad I went out there. Um, we've got a bunch of spiders in our house. We live in the woods, but so I have those like sticky, sticky pads all over the place to catch them. And I heard Nero was up to something. He had one of those sticky things stuck on his foot. He was really unhappy about it. So I'm glad I went out there. But so to finish up that thought, like, even though like these people had, not these people, but like the government had a very sneaking suspicion that like IMH was up to something not even remotely close to like snuff. And they were like really deficient in their baby rearing. Um, that's that. This is fun. Isn't it fun? Are we having fun? But so they couldn't, um, they, they didn't have anything to do. They couldn't do anything. They had suspicions, but they couldn't do anything. So, like, over this time, the rules are going to start trying to change, but it's, it's kind of a lengthy thing to talk about, and it's not really all that interesting. It's just laws and rules being changed. So we, we don't, we'll talk about that. I'll let you know when it's important. So because of the secrecy surrounding the home, um, this is another aspect of it too, there was little chance that a woman entering this facility, first of all, would know anything about the rumored problems and medical standards because it wasn't talked about. So like, if you were like, oh, I'm going to go to IMA, like there's nothing negative about it. There's no Yelp reviews about this place being shady. Like you're just, you're just going to go there and you're going to do what you got to do. And honestly, some some women went there and they had a beautiful time. They had a birth. They had a baby. They left and everything was good. Like some people, like this, it wasn't just a hellhole for everybody. It was just for some people. So like there was no issues at their stay. But then the people who did spot problems, you know, were worried about the standard of child care. They felt that they had been mistreated. Well, they're not going to tell anybody because they shouldn't have even been there to begin with. If you are an unwed mother and you go there to secretly have your baby and then oh it's dirty and like they took your baby like you're okay who are you going to complain to because nobody needs like you don't want anybody to know that you went there to begin with so you're not going to complain because it's a secret so like this is is perpetuating they don't have anybody coming forward saying that place is a shit show because they don't want you, you don't want anybody to know you were there so they have this cycle of there's nobody who can talk about what's going on there. And, like, these people can investigate these people. The government can investigate what's going on there. So this just keeps happening. And it's going to keep happening for a while because nobody is doing anything to stop it. And everybody's, like, just trapped. They're trapped in not wanting or not being able to do anything or not, you know, not wanting people to know about stuff. So, Yeah. Um, William and Lila, this is where it really starts going down. They get so greedy. They're so, so greedy. They're making so much money, but they decide to save more money by cutting cleaning costs. And it shows the unsanitary conditions the babies and the young mothers lived in were increasingly squalid 
which is a fun word, until it became dangerous for their health, like in the instance of Evie Nyforth and her child, Eva Nyforth and her child. So the Youngs also cut costs another way. And that is by deciding which babies would make it to, quote, market. Lila Young decided which babies to sacrifice in the name of cost cutting. William Young would agree, and then they, those babies would not live for very much longer. If any biological mothers inquired, they were told their um, deceased children had been adopted, and those who were not wanted for whatever reason were only fed water and molasses, and they got sicker and tinier and weaker by the day, and within two weeks after those births, those babies would be gone. And at the time, uh, it wasn't suspected. No one knew just how bad it was. I think most assumed it was probably dirty and they were probably up to, you know, some undesirable business practices and that maybe they wanted to close down the facility. But I don't think anybody ever dreamed it would be that bad. I don't think, I don't think anybody thought it would lead to, uh, I'm trying to think, I don't know how to pronounce it, infanticide, the death of babies for no reason. Um, and like in the worst way possible too, like just starving them to death. I mean, that's just, it's dark. I think there's a special place in hell for people who do that. Um, people who abuse children and animals. Like I think there's just, there's a special place for you because that's, they're so innocent and they did nothing to you and they did nothing to deserve that. So it just doesn't make any sense to me for that people would, um, want to do that especially because in their eyes they were deemed as not worth a profit um I think I read and I don't think I included it but like if if the children were biracial or um didn't pass for being white if they um seem, showed any signs of defects which is such a gross term to use it's the term they use not not me um those children were the ones that were decided that they wouldn't make it um any further so that's that's the extra gross part about this story. Um yeah. Uh so up until now everything was pretty uh, not very strict, but like I said, the rules are changing. Um and there was a new amendment to the Maternity Boarding House Act that changed licensing requirements and the youngs applied for this license and it was rejected. <laughs> so um they weren't supposed to see. They were supposed to cease operation, but they didn't. Um, in 1942, they were involved in a um, like a legal thing because there was an adoption from IMH, and they weren't supposed to be conducting adoptions anymore because they didn't have a license. Um, and actually, New Jersey officials came in to aid this because they were trying to crack down on illegal adoptions and baby smuggling. And later, um, a New Jersey newspaper reported that the smuggling scheme had been uncovered and child welfare, like, so the Canada, the child welfare Canada's, wow, the Canadian child welfare uh, officials, like, try to keep this under wraps, like, to keep it from being a bigger scandal. Um, and they were just trying to keep on the lookout for any authorized movement or unauthorized movement of adopted babies that didn't have government approval. And um, to get around that one... The Youngs had the mothers travel to the United States with their babies and uh, pass them off. Uh, 
they were arraigned on eight counts, and I'm not exactly sure where this falls in the whole story, um, whether this was in this exact incident or not, but they were um, in eight counts, including violation of the Maternity Boarding House Act and practicing medicine without a license. So that finally bites them in the ass. Um, they renamed the IMH to the Battle Creek of Nova Scotia Rest Haven Park, um, but the business continued to operate as before, and it just disregarded all the court cases going on. They just changed their name and kept doing what they were doing. In 1945, um, a potential adopted mother, appalled by what she had seen, reported her experiences to an adoption worker in New York. Um, she described the nursing home, well, the nursery at the home, um, and this is a quote, the smell and stench of stale urine overcame her to such an extent that she was ready to fly from the place. The cribs had three children in each one. The floors were bare, and she noticed that the children who should be getting solid foods were getting pabulum in their milk bottles. No child was getting personal care, and all looked undernourished, pale, and soiled. Um, and then this was around the time where they were having surveyors go through since they changed the rules. Um, the group of surveyors said, Although the home confines upwards of 100 mothers or more a year and cares for as many as 70 babies at a time, there is a total lack of qualified medical supervision and serious inadequacy of properly qualified, fully trained nursing care. The room in which the babies were kept was, on one occasion, um, on the occasion of the survey visit, distressingly overcrowded with the obvious result that it was impossible to prevent the spread of colds, and um, this would apply to similarly infectious disease diseases. On at least one previous occasion, infant deaths at the institution had reached epidemic proportions, and this is the opinion of the survey that nothing except great good fortune has prevented similar tragedies from occurring on more frequent occasions. On November 17, 1945, amid all these other court battles, based on the findings of those inspections and the, with the Wellness Act going on, the ideal maternity home was ordered closed. It took health officials until 1945 to find concrete evidence of neglect. And it was a 12-year battle from 1934 to 1946. Um, and they, they gathered so much evidence, you know, and they even pressed on charges of manslaughter. But the Youngs were acquitted. It happened, you know. So ultimately, ultimately, in the grand scheme of things, and all this, after getting all this evidence and doing all this work, the Youngs were convicted of illegally selling babies to four American couples, and they were fined. Let me let me tell you how much they were fined. $428.90 is how much they were fined. Yeah, for all that money they made, they were fined literally, it's chump change to them, because they were made so much money, $428. For everything they had going on, and for all the people's lives they put at risk, and for all the lies they told, and for all like the, the babies that were stolen or killed, they were fined $428. And, um, even though, like, they weren't, they were, the ideal maternity home was ordered closed, and, like, I don't think they were ever officially forced to, like, shut it down, but their, their reputation at this point is dog shit, for a better word, and so they announced that they were shutting down the IMH and that they were going to open up a hotel. In 1946, the Montreal Standard newspaper published an article called Traders in Fear Baby Farm Rackets Still Lure Girls Who Are Afraid of Social Agencies, and in that article they wrote that young girls were exploited by the youngs and bullied into putting their children up for adoption that medical care that the medical care was questionable and that the youngs were international traffickers and in babies the youngs unsuccessfully sued for defamation 
Um, but during the trial, it, uh, well, we're going to get to that. Sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, I mean, during the, no, I can tell you this now. During the trial, it was revealed that the dead infants that had passed away were buried in grocery boxes or the butter boxes. That's where everybody found out that they were called the butter box babies. Um, and they, obviously this was bad press. Um, yeah. So, like, it was bad press that they got this whole thing. Like, the, the, so they went to trial. I, the, I, I buffed this up. I buffed this up. I, I messed this up. I was supposed to deliver this in a different way. But my script writing is questionable at this moment. <laughs> so, so they, they get the, the thing. They write the article. And then Lila's like, fuck you. And she sues them um, because she's like, I don't like this story. And then it goes to court because she's suing them. She fights for a $25,000 libel suit against the local newspaper. And the newspaper fights back. That's when everybody finds out that, like, they were buried in butter boxes. And um, pediatricians who had inspected the maternity home testified to its fly-filled nurseries, overcrowdedness, and the malnourished children. Um, mothers who were um, forced to, well, not forced, but had to work there because they couldn't pay their bills testified, too. Um one told how her baby had passed away from after receiving no medical attention and was buried in a butter box. She also revealed that she had to pose as a nurse during a health department inspection, and another mother, mother admitted she was made to lie in adoption records to indicate that her baby was Jewish. Um, the lawsuit was dismissed, so they didn't get any money, and now everybody knows everything about this case and, like, just how fucking terrible the Youngs were and, like, all all of it, you know, it's all out in the open. Um, so <clears throat> their baby farming empire is exposed, has just the, the heartless operation that it was. And so finally, the ideal maternity home is shut down, bankrupt, and debt-ridden. Uh, the young sell off their property and move to Quebec, and uh, the building, which was in the process of being remodeled for that resort hotel they were going to open up, it burned down in 1962. Uh, so following that trial... And they're just, their their financial problems, they leave, like I said, they get out of there, they're, they're gone. And so finally, the ideal maternity home is shut down. Uh, William died of cancer just before Christmas in 1962, and after his death, Lila returned back to Fox Point and was a teacher again until she died from leukemia at the age of 70. She is buried in the SDA cemetery in Fox Point next to many of the Butterbox babies she helped deliver. Um, IMH's handyman, uh, after years of silence and at, well after the had come, um, closed down, he finally admitted that he personally had buried between 100 and 125, 125 babies in a field owned by Lila's parents. Um, their bodies were first hidden in a tool shed and then laid to rest in the butter boxes obtained from the local grocer. Um, or they were tossed into the sea or burned in the furnace of the ideal maternity home. So... Um, he confirmed that there were several more babies that passed away that were not accounted for. Um, after his confession, police looked for the bodies, and although some of the corpses were eventually found, it was impossible to prove the cause of death, so there were no charges to be presented. Um, despite the darkness, though, the aftermath is, I mean, there's a silver lining to this. Um, child welfare authorities in Canada and America were so concerned with what the Youngs had done that they developed whole new laws to protect adopted children which is a good thing. Um, 
I know people complain. I mean, I've never adopted a baby, obviously, but I heard it's a very difficult and strenuous process. And I understand that can be disheartening. But at the same time, if you don't have these processes in place, I mean, look at what can happen. You know, I mean, maybe it might be overruled, but more rules are better than no rules in some instances. And I think when it comes to the welfare of children and just when you see when an ungoverned situation this can be, I mean it kind of makes you appreciate the rules a little bit just to make sure that baby goes to a good home. I mean, it might, it sucks both ways. Both ways do suck, but I mean, this is the outcome if you don't have any rules at all. Um, so survivors of the ideal maternity home, which there are the people, the people who are adopted in different families are all scattered throughout the United States, Canada, and Europe. And they actually continue to meet support, um, and assist one another with their birth family searches. Um, there was an article about some, uh, two people who had found their birth parents and um, one wanted contact and the other one didn't. It was just a whole, it was a whole thing. Um, very interesting story if you ever want to read it. If you just search Butterbox Babies, um, you'll find the articles I found. Um, the Ideal Maternity Home has been a subject of several books, plays, and two movies. Um, the, the title, the woman who wrote this is called Betty, Betty Cahill. Um, Butterbox Babies is a reference to the Butterboxes that I've mentioned several times. And um, there's also a film release in 2017 called The Child Remains that is based on the ordeals that went on that I described in this podcast. I kind of want to watch that. Um, this week obviously wasn't the time to do it. And now that I've spent an hour talking to you guys, really just procrastinating, I was worried this wasn't going to be long enough. And here we are. <laughs> I uh, procrastinate this final. Um, but yeah, I do want to watch that. I think it'd be interesting. So um, that was that. I... It's a little different than normal content, but I mean, I still kind of find this stuff fascinating, and it is interesting that, like, um, just what a mess it all turned into without any rules. <laughs> and just the the depravity of people and just the ability to be evil is just so, like, impressive sometimes. It's not the right word. I mean, it is and it isn't. It's just, it's dumbfounding, and it is just awe-inspiring how awful people can be to one another and with that there's not gonna be any outro music either because I, I think it all just sounds bad and I'm over it so hopefully we'll see I'm not gonna make any promises by next week but I, I am I'm gonna look into it <laughs> all right I'm gonna go ace this final I'll see you all next week <laughs>